This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 197. Greetings, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 55 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate, Murakir, John, and Morgan have tracked the Brotherhood to their secret base, an underground warren accessed through a small, unassuming warehouse on the Lower West Side. The Brotherhood is currently using the site to perform a black magic ritual, which is releasing the stored death mana from dozens of human sacrifices into a major ley line. The cult's goal is to break through the barriers that lie between the planes of reality, creating a channel to an imprisoned entity that they call the Shackled God. This is the cult's final test for Jared Tamlin, Kate's former psychologist with the Metamore City Police Department. Jared has already demonstrated that he can hear the voice of the Shackled God, and that he is capable of absorbing both divine essence and arcane mana. Now, the Brotherhood intends to open a link between Jared and the Shackled God. If the entity judges Jared worthy, he will become the vessel, filled with a portion of the God's power. The cult believes that this will turn Jared into their dark messiah, the one prophesied to release the Shackled God from its prison and remake the world in its image. Jared has been playing along with this insane plan in order to buy time. As long as the cult thinks he is useful, they won't kill him and dump his body in the underground river. But now Jared is shackled himself, bound to a heavy chair with the full power of the ley line running through him. At this point, unless something unexpected happens, the shackled god will either make Jared a tool for his purposes, or judge him unworthy and destroy him. Jared honestly isn't sure which one is the better outcome. Meanwhile, John and Morgan have begun picking off the Brotherhood's guards at surface level, softening up their defenses for when District Attorney Schubert and Captain Montgomery arrive with reinforcements. At the same time, Kate and Murakir are working feverishly on a ritual of their own, Murray is building a channel that will divert the power of the ley line, sending it to a mana node at a nearby mountain. If the spell is successful, it will cut the power to the Brotherhood's incantation, disabling their spell and closing the channel to the Shackled God. The tricky part is, someone has to take the ley line's mana and redirect it into the channel Murray has made. That's where Kate comes in. Like Jared, Kate has an innate talent for absorbing and channeling supernatural energies. Murray is reasonably sure that she can survive the full force of the ley line's power with no ill effects. 
After all, she has previously bathed in the power of Kaya's nexus, at the end of Things Unseen. But telling a torrent of wild magic where to go is a whole new level of difficulty, and one that might be beyond Kate's skills. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 55 Something's wrong. The thought rose up again from the back of Kate's mind. Again, she gritted her teeth and pushed it back down. We've got this, she told herself. Callie and the others are going to call in the cavalry. John and Morgan are running interference with the bad guys. And we're about to cut the power cord on this black magic ritual. Everything's going to be fine. But still, her doubts lingered. Why aren't they back yet? What if Schubert didn't believe them? What if the Brotherhood got to him already? What if John and Morgan are hurt? She shook her head, trying to clear it. Kate had one job, one fucking job that they still trusted her to handle with her stupid, damaged brain. And she couldn't even do that much if she didn't get her head in the game. Wizardry required focus, especially when you were dealing with the kind of power she and Murakir were messing with now. The skunk morph sat in the center of his casting circle, legs crossed, back straight, eyes closed. The fingertips of his right hand pressed into the concrete in front of him, like one of those Hani's sculptures of the Enlightened One. His left hand gripped his focusing medallion, and the crystal in the center glowed with a soft golden light. The sigils around the casting circle glowed with the same aura, pulsing fainter and brighter in a slow, steady rhythm. He hadn't moved since he'd begun the ritual, more than an hour ago. Kate could feel the power of earth magic flowing around her as she sat in the secondary caster's circle to Murray's right. That magic was slow, deliberate, patient. Kate hated it. For as long as she'd studied magic, it was the air spells that had attracted her. Fast, nimble, clever magic. Magic of thought and illusion and freedom of movement. Air and earth were as unalike as magic could be, and Kate couldn't imagine how the same person could ever master both of them. Yet if Janus's information was correct, that was exactly what Murakir had done. Of course, Murakir isn't exactly sane. Catherine. Kate looked up at the skunk. Yeah? The channel is nearly complete. You should begin drawing on the ley line. Right. Kate took a deep breath and straightened her back. Right. Her fingers tightened around the Arthana in her left hand. She looked down at the silver blade and willed it to stop shaking. Nothing to worry about. I'm just gonna drink a river made out of magic. No biggie. She closed her eyes and opened up her wizard sight, focusing her perceptions through the Amala in the center of her forehead. A world of shimmering colors splashed across her mind's eye, the patterns of mana flowing around her. 
Murakir's incantation appeared as a shimmering golden causeway, an arcane aqueduct stretching off to the west with ruler-straight precision. The far end, Kate knew, would soon be tied to the distant mountain Kararak and the mana node that waited there. The near end looked like an enormous funnel, the mouth of it directly in front of her. Kate turned her arcane focus to the ground beneath her, and then beyond it. The ley line rushed past, barely a meter underground, a torrent of multicolored arcane energies. It looked like a river made out of light, but not just any river. There was a wildness to it that reminded Kate of Whitewater Rapids. There was something of fire in its nature, too, or of lightning, something unrestrained and dangerous. Most people, of course, could have walked right through the ley line and noticed nothing, save perhaps a sudden chill, or their hair standing on end. Ley lines were extraordinarily powerful, but under most circumstances they didn't interact with normal matter. For a wizard, though, both the power and the danger were within easy reach. All you had to do was reach out and touch it, and hope you could keep it from burning you. Drawing on a ley line was not for beginners. Kate reached out with her right hand, splaying her fingers against the concrete. She pictured what she wanted, and with a few subtle motions of her arthana, she wove it into being. A small, narrow channel, crafted from her own mana reserves and extending out and downward into the ley line. She lowered the tip of that channel into the line like a funnel into a river, and the hose at the other end of the funnel was a direct line to Kate's mystic center. The force of the line hit Kate directly in the solar plexus like the blast from a fire hose. She sucked in her breath as the mana rushed into her. Her skin flashed with sensations, burning and freezing at the same time. Life mana filled her with a thrill of euphoria, even as death mana made her feel queasy and cold. A rumbling sound, like endless thunder, echoed in her arcane senses. Another phantom sensation, no more real than the heat or the cold. The currents of mana jumped and bucked and twisted as she channeled them the wild magic trying to break free of the pattern Kate imposed on it. Kate held on and opened her amalin wide to receive the power, letting the mana sink down deep into her core. Eventually, Kate's channel reached an equilibrium. The turbulence subsided, the mana flowing in a steady stream, like water from a kitchen faucet. It was only a tiny fraction of the ley line's total power, but it was a constant supply of mana plugged directly into Kate's reserves. Normally, this would be the point when Kate would channel that mana into whatever spell she was trying to power. The spell would function as long as the ley line flowed and the wizard's channel remained intact. This was essentially how enchantments worked, and all arcane technology depended on it. But Kate wasn't trying to get the mana to do anything. She just needed it to go away, and to take the rest of the ley line with it. So Kate called up her will once more, raised her arthana, and formed a second channel, from her mystic center to the mouth of Murray's aqueduct. A stream of mana rose back up out of Kate's center, traveling up her spine and out along her right arm. 
It shot out of her open palm in a multicolored spray, widening into a plume as it went, until it entered the aqueduct. The lines of golden spellweave flashed around it, and the plume of mana contracted, focused, becoming a steady stream once more. The mana flowed up the passage of the aqueduct and off to the west, heading for the distant mountain. Kate studied the flow of the mana carefully, checking for leaks, looking for any rogue eddies in the current that might cause trouble later. As far as she could tell, everything looked okay. She opened her physical eyes and looked toward Murakir, but left her wizard sight open, a colorful overlay on her mundane senses. We good? she asked, raising her voice to be heard over the sound of the arcane current. Murakir nodded once. Kate closed her eyes, took a deep breath, then began to widen the channel. She tried to do it gradually, a little at a time, but the ley line was temperamental. Each time she gave it any slack, the mana surged and thrashed and gut-punched her again. Kate held together the weave of her channel by sheer force of will, though with each widening she feared it would tear or buckle under the strain of the mana surging through it. The widening stream poured into her core and back out again, and the current projecting from her hand increased in both width and intensity. It wasn't enough. Kate wrestled with the ley line for what felt like hours, slowly widening the channel and then fighting to steady the flow. She had widened the stream to perhaps ten times its original size, an impressive feat under other circumstances, but it barely made a dent in the flow of the ley line. Though the line itself provided a constant replenishment of Kate's arcane energy reserves, she could feel her physical reserves growing weaker, her body tiring from the constant expenditure of effort. A headache that Kate had not felt in days began throbbing in her temples, a warning sign that she was pushing her wizardly talent to its limits. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. She opened her eyes and looked questioningly at Murakir. The skunk had tied off the ends of his spellweave to a pair of anchor points on either side of the ley line, drawing on the power of the line itself to keep the spell active. With no need to concentrate on the spell any longer, he was watching Kate carefully, frowning as he saw her struggle with the current. You're working too hard, he told her. You're taking a herd of wild horses and trying to make them canter together. It's not going to work. Kate glared at him. When she spoke, it came through gritted teeth, her voice shaking as the endless stream of mana coursed through her. And what should I do? Wild magic is wild, Murakir said. He leaned forward and pressed his hand to the ground again. Golden light erupted from both his fingertips and the medallion. Embrace the wildness. You don't need to make the horses canter. You just need to start a stampede. And how do I... But before she could finish the question, the concrete floor gave way beneath her and dropped her directly into the path of the ley line. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. This is Jared Tamlin. I'm a prisoner. Help me. This is... 
Jared's litany was interrupted by a psychic scream that drowned out all other thought. It was a sound of shock and betrayal and agony, and it rang through the ley line with the force of an air raid siren. It was not the answer to his call that Jared had been expecting, but as soon as he heard it, he recognized the voice. Katane! Jared opened his telepathic talent as wide as he could make it. As feeble as his power was, it didn't take much to receive a psychic transmission, and whatever had just happened to her, Katane seemed to be broadcasting with immense strength. The entire ley line was now colored by her emotions, and her thoughts reverberated through the arcane current. Oh, Prophet, help me! Too much, too much, too much! I can't take it! I can't! Jared didn't know what Katane was trying to do, but he was sure her presence here was not a coincidence. She was in the ley line, and she must be trying to do something to help him, or at least to stop the Brotherhood from completing their ritual. He tried to send back encouragement, but the mana was flowing the wrong way for that. It was like shouting into the wind. A flash of light drew his attention back to the physical world. The arcane markings of the Brotherhood's incantation flared with sudden intensity. An earthquake rocked the chamber where Jared sat, a low rumbling that grew slowly into a roar. They know they're out of time, Jared realized. Somebody's trying to mess up their ritual, and they're trying to speed it up. Katane's thoughts continued to echo through the line. Oh, Eli, Yahshua, Prophet, Starchild, someone help me, it's so much. But then, to Jared's astonishment, the power of the line flowing through him began growing weaker. Katane's voice grew thinner, more distant, like a door was slowly being closed. Gods, Jared thought wonderingly. Is she trying to... to absorb the ley line? The way I absorbed that death mana the Brotherhood threw at me? He could scarcely imagine it, but the ley line was getting weaker. Meanwhile, in the spell chamber, the Brotherhood's incantation reached a crescendo. Bits of masonry and dirt fell all around Jared's chair, periodically accompanied by plumes of dust. The earth groaned. The sigils burned so brightly that they left spots in Jared's vision. The ceiling above him shimmered. And then, it faded. He couldn't think of any other way to describe it. One moment the ceiling was there, solid stone. An instant later, it became partly transparent, rippling and waving like a movie projected on a thin veil of fabric. Jared focused past that shaky projection, at whatever lay beyond it, and there he saw a purple sky and dark, roiling clouds. And it looked exactly like the sky in the dream he had shared with Katane. Jared stared at the vision, a nameless terror clutching at his chest. It was one thing to hear someone say that they would open a link between worlds, it was quite another to see it. He tried once again to break free from his bonds, but now he found himself frozen in place, unable to move a muscle. The clouds churned and shifted, then drew in on themselves, clustering together in a single dark mass. Two glowing points of light appeared in the darkness. 
They looked like dragons' eyes, narrowed and burning. The eyes seemed to focus on Jared, and he felt the presence of another mind pressing against his own. It felt huge, ancient, cold, and alien. Icy fingers traced their way over his thoughts, dragged sharp claws across his psyche. Then the claws dug in and pulled. Jared's mouth fell open in a silent scream. No torment the Brotherhood had yet inflicted had prepared him for this. The thing beyond the veil peeled open the layers of his mind, like an ancient anatomist dissecting a cadaver. Memories flashed before him unbidden, as if someone had pulled out the photo albums of his mind and was paging through them uninvited. His introverted childhood spent more with books and adults than with his peers. The emergence of his telepathy as a teenager, when he made love to his girlfriend and discovered he could hear her thoughts. His rejection by the Psy Collective, when they decided his power was too weak to bother training him. His time in graduate school, where he met, courted, and married his wife, Catherine. The heart-wrenching loss when Catherine was taken from him, nearly turned by the vampire syndicate. Her body burned at her instructions, so she would not return as the undead. The courting and loss of his second great love, Danielle Sharabi, stolen from him not by the vampires, but by his fellow telepaths. And the five quiet, lonely years since, in which Jared had immersed himself in his work, helping others with their problems, because he could not bear to face his own not daring to love again, because he felt sure another heartbreak would destroy him. The thing beyond the veil saw all of this. How much it understood, Jared could not say, but after some time, a few minutes or an eternity, those icy fingers withdrew their grip on him. Jared collapsed in his chair, slumped forward against his restraints, his chest heaving. Beyond the veil, the clouds rumbled, and hidden within that thunder, like a whisper carried by the wind, Jared heard a calm, quiet voice. You have known pain, the voice said, as a cold breeze stirred the air around him. You have known loss. You have desired vengeance. Jared did not even try to compose a telepathic reply. He was utterly spent. He could do nothing but gasp for breath, sucking in air around his gag. But silently, in his heart, he acknowledged that these things were true. The wind in the chamber grew stronger. Even through his exhaustion, Jared shivered at the sudden chill. You understand, the voice said. I, too, have known pain. I have known loss. I desire vengeance. The wind was so strong now that Jared could hear it, a low moan that echoed from somewhere far beyond the veil. Weakly, Jared raised his head, looking up at the hole between the worlds. The cloud had grown closer, blotting out the sky around it. The eyes burned and roiled like the heart of a blast furnace. The voice spoke again, 
and its quiet, gentle tones were strangely unnerving in the face of that huge, frightening cloud. You and I will do great things together, Jared Tamlin. You are the key. Then a long tendril extended from the cloud, like a tentacle or a pseudopod. The inky black appendage reached toward him, pressed up against the far side of the screen, and then pushed through it. Jared screamed into his gag and kept screaming. The thing was here now, the dark tendril reaching across time and space and coming right at him. It smoked and flickered as it moved, shedding bits of itself into the air as if it were barely holding itself together. Still, it pressed on until it was only three meters from Jared's face, then two, then one. And then the ley line went dead, the window between worlds slammed shut, and the tentacle collapsed into a puddle of oily, phosphorescent goo. The Brotherhood's spell markings let out a loud, sizzling pop, then went out, leaving Jared alone in the darkness. And that's the end of Chapter 55. It's all coming together now, folks. With the Brotherhood's ritual shut down, Kate and her allies tighten the net, while Jared just tries to get out of this mess alive. Gary Henderson said, Never put off writing until you are better at it. So let's see how I've done with my goals this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,707 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 677 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 308 days without breaking my chain. I'll be honest, this was not a great week for writing. The day job was extra intense this week, thanks to a perfect storm of inconvenient projects that all came due at the same time. That meant that I was unable to take the time to sit down and write during my lunch break like I usually do, which left me trying to squeeze out time after I got home from work. I did manage to keep my chain going, but just barely, and there were a couple of times when I was sitting in bed just trying to bang out a few hundred words before I fell asleep. I made a little more progress on All the World of Fire, which is now up to 21,000 words, but on three days I kept my chain going just by working on the scripts for the podcast. I don't like resorting to that, but when my brain is fried at the end of a long day, sometimes that's all I can do. Next Tuesday, Mel leaves for her summer job at Burning Man, which means it will just be me and the furballs until after Labor Day. This is usually good for my writing output, especially if I'm deep in the middle of a project, so I'm hopeful that I can bring my word counts up substantially next week. I'm going to miss her terribly, of course, but sinking into a story is usually a good way to combat those feelings of loneliness. Just think of it as a stay-at-home writer's retreat. And now, the feedback. Hey, Chris. It's Nobilis Reed. It's been a while since I've sent in some feedback. 
but I just wanted to let you know that after listening to the most recent episode of Metamore City, I definitely wanted to thank you for expressing something that I had been thinking about for a long time and had not come to any kind of resolution on. The topic was being a writer and writing about injustice. I am a white, cisgender, home-owning, employed, employable man. And that puts me on the privileged end of a lot of axes of privilege. And I felt like there was a kind of a catch-22 in writing about injustice of various sorts, writing about oppression, writing about those topics where I could ignore them and not talk about them, which supports the status quo. I could write about them and do badly and do an injustice in the process of writing them. Or I could, you know, go to a great deal of effort to write in a way that was supportive and helpful and still end up taking up space that someone who is, you know, an own voices writer writing about these topics themselves could be taking up. And uh, there did not seem to be any way out of this Catch-22. There was always going to be something wrong with whatever I did, no matter how I did it. And my previous resolution to this Catch-22 was to say that to expect that the world does not have Catch-22s, to expect that there is always a right way to do things, and that by doing those things, one could remain blameless, was itself an aspect of privilege. That's a world that only privileged people live in, that people who do not have privilege, people who are oppressed, are constantly faced with Catch-22s. I could list them, but I'm sure you're aware of them as much as I am. What the conversation in this chapter has done for me is to not only allow me to kind of live with that Catch-22, but also have a kind of response to the not doing good enough thing was, if somebody does call me out on some aspect, I can then take that and infuse that to inform my next work. And it becomes a process rather than a goal. And I think that that's a much more healthier way of looking at it. So thank you for providing another piece to a puzzle that I've been working on for a very long time. And thank you for everything you're doing and um, keep it up. Thanks, Nobilis. As I'm sure you could tell, this part of Will's story was my own way of wrestling with these issues. The question of how to be a responsible storyteller, in a world where people have already heard a lot of stories from comparatively privileged white guys, is a difficult one, and I don't think there's a single right answer. Like you said, catch-22s are everywhere in life, and for those who don't have as much privilege as we do, they come up a lot more often. James T. Kirk famously said that he didn't believe in the no-win scenario, but as Captain Picard said a generation later, it is possible to make no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. Now, Picard was an old white guy too, but I think he had the right of it on this one. In addition to the thoughts I shared in the chapter, I'll put forward the following points for consideration. None of this is to disagree with your core argument, but think of it as added nuance, for whatever it's worth. First, I don't believe authors like us are in a position to crowd anyone out of the market. 
We're self-publishing our content and putting out a ton of it for free in our podcasts. When it comes to traditional publishing, sure. Saving shelf space and funds to print a million copies of the latest James Patterson or John Grisham novel does cut out a lot of the budget that could be used to elevate diverse new voices. But guys like us are just a drop in the bucket, and the self-pub and Patreon-backed economy has room for a lot of folks at our level. This is the kind of pie that will tend to grow as more kinds of people jump into it. Second, to the extent that we do have a platform, we can take advantage of our privilege to spotlight the work of people who have more of the deck stacked against them. I know that Nobilis Erotica has featured the work of lots of people from less advantaged backgrounds. I've used my Facebook group and this podcast to highlight some excellent work from artists I love, like trans author April Daniels's fantastic superhero series, Dreadnought. This is something I think we can always do more of, and the higher our own profile becomes, the more we can use it to raise awareness about the awesome work of people who aren't straight white dudes. Third, good faith representation always matters, even when it's flawed. I read an article this week about the HBO series Euphoria, from a trans woman who loves and hates the show at the same time. Yes, there's way too much sexualized violence, and yes, the showrunner doesn't really understand the differences between being attracted to trans women and being attracted to men, and yes, a lot of the dialogue seems off because the writer didn't know as much about the cultures he was writing as he thought he did. But by God, underneath all the flaws, there's a beautiful story about a cis girl and a trans girl falling in love, and that's something we've never seen on television before. And the reviewer loves the show for that reason, even though it drives her crazy, because she can look at the story and see herself reflected back to her in a way she was frankly starving for. That's something we book authors can do, too. Finally, consider the fact that you're more unique than you might think you are. Even if there are a zillion straight white dudes out there writing stories, and I'll be the first to admit there are, none of those guys can write the stories that you have inside you. And frankly, there are a lot of people who will pick up your stories who might never take a second look at Toni Morrison, or Chinua Achebe, or Walter Mosley. And if they can see diverse people reflected in your fiction, maybe they'll be a little less afraid when they encounter folks like that in the real world, too. Thanks again for sharing your thoughts. It's lovely to hear from you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.